Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. What you come to realize with deeper self-awareness is there is really no such thing as happy or sad, good or bad. An event just is an event. But for the human mind to understand and connect with it, we have to give it a meaning. We get to choose what that meaning is. The challenge is not becoming successful. The challenge is remaining who you are once you've become successful. Having lost my mum, it taught me the fragility of life, but it also taught me to spend time building and focusing on what matters because each day is not given and we can never take it for granted, as my mum showed. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Our guest today is the renowned Simon Alexander Ong, who is a personal development entrepreneur, coach, and public speaker. His clients are from all walks of life, but they share one trait. They all believe that the greatest investment you can make is in yourself. Now, this speaks to the Elevate language, to the T, and I know you're in for an enlightening conversation. Simon's work has seen him invited onto Sky News, BBC Radio London and LBC Radio for interviews. His insights have seen him featured in the likes of the Huffington Post, Forbes, Virgin and The Guardian. Simon is based in London with his wife, Laurie, and their lovely daughter, Sienna. I first came across Simon and his incredible work when we were both shortlisted in the Business Book Awards. We met at the gala dinner where the awards were presented and of course, very deservingly, Simon's book, Energized, won top prize and has won many prizes since. Huge congratulations to all these achievements, Simon. Having spent a bit of time in his company and then reading his uplifting book, I knew I had to have him onto the podcast as we could all gain from the energy that Simon radiates and learn a thing or two about working some of that into our lives, especially in the role of parents and carers raising young tweens and teens. I know firsthand how much energy that takes. So without further ado, I welcome the enigmatic Simon Hong to the Elevate podcast with great excitement. Hello, Simon. Thanks so much for being here. Ramita, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor, really. I'm so grateful for your time. And I know what a busy person you are and what a wild ride you've had of late. How's it all going? It, it has been absolutely incredible. I mean, when you write a book and, and you put it out into the world, you have no idea what that could lead to. I wrote it during the COVID pandemic. It was released in April 2022. And as you said, since then, it has been an absolute ride. And I have enjoyed every minute of it so far. So you really couldn't have imagined where you would be today when you wrote this book, probably? Absolutely not. I, I think yeah. there are some things that you can predict, but because there are unknowns out there, as in how would people perceive it? Will there be people buying it? Would they enjoy it? 
Would there be opportunities to share my book with different audiences? A lot of those things you can't predict ahead of time. Since it came out, I've had the privilege to speak at festivals across the country, travel to places like the Middle East. I'm going to America again in a couple of weeks and come across people who have inspired me in my journey, reading my mm. book was completely surreal. It must be so exciting as well. <laughs> I'm going to assume that all the results of the hard work that you put into writing this book and pouring mm. your heart and soul into it must energize you. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Indeed. <laughs> but, but I would love to know what else energizes you. So many things energize me. You know, one of the questions I often get asked a lot is, Simon, how do you have so much energy to do things that you're doing? And the one habit which has been pivotal to me from the days of being employed to running my own business today has been a non-negotiable of daily movement, moving my body every single day. Now, when I talk about moving your body, it doesn't mean you have to go to the gym and have a 60-minute workout or mm -hmm. run outside for a particular length of time. It can be as short as just in five or 10 minutes. And, and so I didn't put this pressure on myself of having to do an hour every single day because sometimes life catches up with you and you don't have the time to do uh, an hour. So whatever my day has been like, I've always made sure I've moved my body in some way. That has been one of the most pivotal decisions I made, which has energized me in everything I do, because it is like the domino effect in action. When you move your body, you feel healthier. Your mind is in a much better state to take on whatever challenges the day throws your way. And then it makes you want to eat better. It makes you want to take care of other areas of your life better. And it just raises your standards. The other has been discovering my purpose. For so long, I was doing something that paid well, but was very much unfulfilling. So in effect, I was low on spiritual energy. What I mean by being low on spiritual energy is when you're doing something that either goes against your values or does not give space for your potential to shine. And we manifest that through a feeling of tension inside of our stomachs when we know we're not doing the thing that we're meant for. But when I started to do something that was meaningful, having an impact on other people's lives, that energized me to know what my purpose was, to know that every time I went into a conversation or walked up onto stage or saw people reading my book, that it was influencing their life in some positive way. That just energized me to continue the work that I'm doing. Finding your why. I love that. Mm. That's fantastic. Our friend Simon Sinek's favorite line, isn't it? You're so fortunate to have found that why. And I'm going to dig into that a little bit more about how you got there. But I'd love to ask you, you just hit on spiritual energy. And then obviously, when you talked about movement, you spoke about physical energy and having the actual ability to move around and keep up with your demanding schedule. How do you define energy? What is energy then? Let's talk about that with our audience. Yeah, there, there, there is multiple ways that you can define it. So I'll just give a bit of background and then I'll share how I describe it in my book. Scientifically, energy is everything. Now, what that means is that we are made up of energy, the world is made up of energy, and our universe is made up of energy. It's what binds us all together. It is also very much a spiritual thing. So if you look into different cultures uh, in the yoga practice, uh, they reference this as prana, as the energy of prana is living in everything around us. In Maori culture, they call this mana. In my Chinese culture, they call it chi. And if you are a fan of the Star Wars film franchise, you would call it the force. Now, whatever we term it as or whatever we describe it as, we're talking about the same thing, which is energy being this universal force and language that has no words, but we can feel it inside of ourselves. 
So when you go to a networking event and two people approach you, for some reason, you feel drawn to speak to one person more than the other, even though none of them have said a single word yet. And that's energy. There's a certain energy that him or her emits that draws you into their field. Now, in my book, the way I describe it so people can understand it is energy can be viewed in four dimensions. You have physical energy, you have emotional energy, you have mental energy and spiritual energy. Unfortunately for most of us, when it comes to our energy, we focus exclusively on physical energy because it's the one thing uh, that we see in other people. So you can tell when somebody's tired or they're not eating well or they're not getting sufficient exercise. And this is why when we begin every new year, the most popular resolutions are to do with physical energy. I'm going to sign up to that gym class this year. I'm going to start this new diet. I'm going to get more sleep now. And so we focus a lot on physical energy. But if you look at the world around us, what you will notice is that many are exhausted, not because they are physically doing too much, but because they are doing too little of the things that bring them joy and because they are often running someone else's race. And this is where we start to tap in into the other dimension, spiritual energy. Are you doing the things that are meant for you? Are you doing the work that allows you to shine? Emotional energy. Are you in a culture or environment that gives you psychological safety? Do you understand yourself? Have you taken that journey from your head to your heart, which is the longest journey we make as humans? And then mental energy is, do you understand how to cultivate a mindset that will allow you to thrive, to have the focus on what matters, and to access the creative spirit that we all possess? Wow. There's so much more on that in the book, as you say, <laughs> and it is amazing to think about. So I'm now looking at that and wondering how that relates to energizers and drainers, because mm. you speak about that too. So people that have made this journey and possibly are more aware of the energy they emit, is it an unconscious thing? How do you pick up on somebody who's an energizer and somebody who's an, a drainer? As with anything, it begins with awareness. You can't change what you're not aware of. So as you become more in tune with your feeling, so when you spend some time with someone, you might think, wow, that felt like minutes, but I was with them for hours. You know, they are energizers. They open your mind to a world of possibility. They give you different perspective and lenses through which to see the world. They just ignite something in you that you cannot explain in the moment, but you go away energized thinking, wow, there is so much more I can do in the world. But when you spend time with drainers, you think to yourself, man, when, when is this going to finish? Yeah, we've all, we've all been feeling, there. <laughs> yeah, feeling full of negativity. I'm starting to complain more. And this is the thing about energy is it, it does not matter if the energy is positive or negative. You simply become more like the energy you spend your time with. And this is why we have to be so cautious with how we curate and optimize our environment. If you spend a lot of time with people that are negative and that are drainers, no doubt you'll become one. If you spend a lot of time with people that are energizers and radiate optimism and positivity, then of course, your mind will start to think like that as well. Now, it's not to say there are not going to be days where you, know, you feel down and you go through the spectrum of human emotion. But when you spend time with energizers, you realize that yes, you will have days where you go through the ups and downs of emotion, but how you respond and how you handle them will be far healthier than if you were to spend time purely with the drainers and those who are negative. I mean, it's almost an obvious statement in some ways, mm. but it's actually quite profound. And, <laughs> and now it is really helpful, I think, for all of us who are in the day-to-day -day sometimes forget these important 
reminders about surrounding yourself with people that lift you, not drain you and suck you for your all your energy. <laughs> <laughs> so Simon, let's go a little bit backwards in time. And I would love to know if possible a little bit more about you and what are the events in your life though, so far that were probably the most pivotal in shaping who you, Simon Ong, are today, the person you've become and how you've got to this place of knowing who you, you are and what your purpose is. I was born here in the United Kingdom to immigrant parents. So they they came over to the UK from Malaysia uh, in search for a better life. The schools I went to, I was very much a minority. There were only a handful of, of Chinese students in the entire school. So not just in the year group, but the entire school. And my focus was purely on doing well academically. So be top of the class, graduate to the next year, get to a good college, get a good job paid well. And I'm sure many listening can relate to that. It's the path that many of us are taught when we're young. The first pivotal moment for me came when I was 17. Uh, when, when I was at school, I was in the physics class. And I remember the teacher came up to me and said, Simon, the headmaster would like to see you. Now, whenever you hear that as, as a <laughs> student, uh, your mind goes straight to thinking, what have I done wrong? And so I remember going to his office. I sit down and he's looking at me. His, his face is very solemn. And in the corner of my eye, I see my dad in the reception there. And I knew immediately it wasn't for bad behavior. You know, talk about energy. You can feel the energy. It wasn't about bad behavior because the energy just didn't align with, with that message. And he said to me, Simon, take whatever time you need off and we'll be here from you. Your dad's waiting outside. Unfortunately, your mom has slipped into a coma following a tragic accident and uh, we'll be here if you need, but just take the, take the time off uh, however long you need. And so my dad drove myself, and my brother to the hospital and a few days later, unfortunately, my, my mom didn't make it. And that was the first pivotal moment because when you go through such an experience at a young age, especially when it is unexpected, you know, there were no signs, there were, there were no sort of indication that this was going to happen. It shocks your world and, and the way you see the world. It almost matured me overnight. My view of life shifted and I went back to school and people were doing what I guess teenagers would do, but I just didn't connect with any of it because my mind was seeing the world with complete different perspectives. And there were so many life lessons that I took from that. I remember one of the lessons I wrote down in, in a notepad I had in time were two words, don't wait, don't wait. Because having lost my mum, it taught me the fragility of life, but it also taught me to spend time building and focusing on what matters because each day is not given. We think we have forever, but we don't. And we can never take it for granted. As my mom showed, it's different if you have some expectation that something's going to happen. You know, if you are told that you have an illness or you have cancer, at least there's some process of expectation. You know this is going to happen, so you can somewhat mentally prepare, even though when it happens, it still will rock your world. But when it's completely unexpected and you were just getting on with life every day and boom, this, this incident occurred. So that was the first pivotal moment. The second was when I failed my second year of university. So I eventually got to university, but it took me a few years before I could share what had happened with my mom, because at the time there were no resources for dealing with mental health issues. You know, the internet was in its infancy today. You can follow mental health influencers, you can download mental health apps, you can speak to someone on the phone, but back then there wasn't. And so it took me a while before I could share that with people at university. And I think having grown up with 
a lot of strict rules, I guess, in place. And having gone through what I went through, I, I did go off the rails a little bit because I had never experienced what a lot of my friends had done when they were teenagers. Because of course, in those final years as a teenager, I went completely into my shell. So I didn't drink, I didn't go out. And because I missed out on a lot of that, it almost caused me to want to binge on that when I was at university with nobody around me holding me back. And so that led me to failing my second year at university, which is not a nice thing to have to tell your uh, family when, when they've contributed to financing your education. And the reason I say that that was a pivotal moment is because that meant I could not fill in application forms for jobs either as an intern or upon graduation in the same way that many could, because you would log on to the website of a company, you would fill in the application form and the first page they would ask you for your exam results. Now, having failed three out of four exams, I would not even get past the first hurdle. And so it forced me to go to all of the career events at my university and network, build relationships with people at the company so I could somehow bypass that system. And there were a number of individuals who saw the value I could bring and they said, hey, send me your CV and I'll forward it on to HR and I'll see if I can get you an interview. So I was able to get those interviews without going through the application form process because I gave myself no choice but to make this the only route that I could move forward. And so the skill of learning how to communicate, build relationships and network that I was learning at the time has served me well now as an entrepreneur. So that's why that comes up for me as a pivotal moment. And the final one, the third and final one that comes to my mind is the day I decided to leave employment for entrepreneurship. Because while it sounds easy on the outside, it's actually very tough mentally because you are going from a way of living and working where you know at the end of each month you're going to get a paycheck in your bank account, you've got benefits, you've got insurance, you may have a bonus element to your pay, you've even got a pension that the company contributes to. But going from that to running your own business where you have no idea month to month if you're going to get paid, you have no maternity or paternity leave, there's no benefits, I mean, you are the business, was a very tough transition because it took me I would say about five or six months in my head going back and forth. Shall I do it? Shall I not do it? And I was almost pushed into this decision by the universe. You know, often people say the universe works in mysterious ways. So I was building this coaching business on the side and I got to a point where I had free paying clients. And I also was balancing this full-time job, this, this nine to five job. And I said to myself, if I were to get a fourth client, not only would my coaching suffer because I could only coach on evenings and weekends, but my day job would suffer because I would have to balance these two very different identities. And so the choice became, do I continue my day job and limit myself to just free clients or do I quit my day job and see how far I can take this? And that was the decision that I was in a dilemma about. It got to Christmas 2016 and that's when I decided to hand in my resignation. And it, was, it wasn't an easy decision because I knew that once I quit that job, I could never go back because I'm out in the world of entrepreneurship. I mean, it would be tough to go back and say, hey, I need a job again. By the way, I'm also running a business on the side. It would be hard to recruit me again. 
Uh, so that was the other pivotal moment because it was a tough experience. It was a tough time, but yeah. it began the journey to where I am today. And those two words, do it, came through. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> but thank you, Simon, for sharing those. I know some of those are not easy conversations or, or things to share about. And, and I really mm. do appreciate you being so vulnerable and open. I can relate to at least two of those three things. I also lost my mum. I was 13 and I went mm. to a very similar experience of not mm. being able to I didn't have the skill set and nobody in my family knew mm. how to teach me how to express what I had gone through. So I also mm. lived in denial about what had happened to me and almost pretended my mom was mm. at work when people asked and, mm. you know, went through all sorts of strange scenarios in order to mm. cope with what we had just been hit with. And it does turn your life upside down. Mm. And I think it absolutely, so it, everything you've just said to me resonates. And this idea of leaving your day job to become an entrepreneur mm. is also something I've done in the last three years. <laughs> You have a Chinese background. I have an Indian background. Mm. And I feel there's another level of energy that we can relate on in terms of the expectations and mm. family upbringing value systems that our children, well, that I think we inhabit from our parents mm. and, 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 our, and the elders before us. How did you grow up understanding the definition of success when yeah. you were a youngster, a teenager? And how do you define it for yourself and your daughter today? And also then the second part of this question is, do you feel successful today? And how would you advise young people who don't always know what success looks like or feels like to feel successful? Coming from an Asian culture, I, I understood success to be defined by your academic results. So the results you got in your exams and also the job title you held when you graduated from university. So if you held a very respected position in, say, uh, the law profession, in, in finance, in medicine, then you were considered to be successful. That was very much my definition and shaped the career that I wanted to follow. I wasn't keen on cutting things open. So medicine was kind of a no-no for me. In law and accounting, it looked like a boring career for me. And so the one that was left was finance. And I grew up watching films like Boiler Room and Wall Street. And so popular culture shaped the trajectory that I would, I would follow. Now, even though there were some tough parts of growing up in an Asian household, I also think it's a bit of a balance. You, you know, yes, you are restricted by the family's definition of success and that can define your path in life. But on the other side, there are some values that I think growing up in the Asian household has been very beneficial. Two that come to mind now as I speak to you is hard work, which I think even though I'm not doing the things that my family wanted me to do, I still embrace hard work in everything I do. So I think hard work was something I learned through growing up in that in that household. And also humility. Uh, one of the things I've always been taught by my mom and my dad and my grandparents is never let success get to your head. In a world where information is becoming more easily accessible through social media, through online courses and platforms, the challenge is not becoming successful, the challenge is remaining who you are once you've become successful. What happens is ego can very quickly take over. And so humility and hard work were two very powerful values that are stuck with me growing up in, in an Asian environment in the and work I get to do today. And I would probably even add that is even more emphasized when you're a child of an immigrant family yeah. like I was as well, because the success my parents had in their home country 
didn't translate to the same level of success or their degrees weren't honored in the same way in Canada. And so my mom had to start again. You know, these things are, you Mm. can be replaceable or your context makes a big difference as well, I think. It's a good share that you said there with me too, because I think that your achievements can be taken away from you, especially when you move to a different country, when you integrate into a new community, but who you are never leaves you. So if you're embracing, say, hard work, humility, kindness, I mean, you can't take that away from anybody. That will remain with you regardless of where you are living in the world. Now, as I've grown up, of course, my definition of success has changed uh, because I've left the world of employment. I started my own business. I'm, I'm now a parent. Me now, success is a couple of things. Firstly, it's doing the things that make you feel alive. And those things are often very personal. And once you are clear on them, your objective is to build your life and career around those answers. And they will be different for all of us. So that's the first thing. Get clear on what success means to you and do the work that makes you feel most alive because then you'll have greater meaning in your everyday living. You know, you wake up each day excited by what the day will bring. And the second for me is simply being better than who you were yesterday. If you are improving just a little bit compared to who you were yesterday, that's success. If you are stagnating and you're becoming worse than who you were yesterday, that for me is the opposite of success. Now, what's great about these two factors I share with you is that they are in your control. They are in your control. You're understanding what success means for you. Go out and experiment. Try things. Get things wrong. Through that journey, you're going to discover what your purpose is. That is in your control to go out and explore. Being better than who you were yesterday, again, that is in your control. You can change the books you read. You can change the people you follow. You can change who you spend time with. That is in your control. And so as I raise my daughter now into the world, that's the sort of focus I want to have with her. Instead of saying to be successful, you have to do this list of things. For me, I want to educate her that I don't care what you do. As long as you are happy doing what you do, All I ask, and again, this touches on the values, all I ask is that once you go out and experiment and fail and try things and you learn what you like, work hard at it, be humble and be kind. That's all I ask. That's beautiful. What an absolutely wonderful and inspiring way to help uplift our young folks as well. I think (laughs) it's true. It's really true. I have photographs of myself holding a doctor's kit from the age Mm. of five and I I keep (laughs) asking myself did I actually go into a toy shop and choose that (laughs) (laughs) I love that and I'm trying to remind myself of all of this is with my teenagers who are now choosing a levels Mm. or picking GCSEs and and I keep saying to you don't need to know now you you really don't you know do what you enjoy and 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 the rest will follow but yeah I think it is hard in this um I've got it right here fabulous book of yours look Mm. how many I've got loads of tabs (laughs) You share one of these poems called No Such Thing as the Worst Day Ever, which yeah. I've actually then shared on my social media and shared it with lots of my friends because I think it's absolutely brilliant. Mm. I love it. But I think most teenagers, especially the ones I work with and the ones I'm raising, probably find themselves in the view of the world that is negative. They always want to be the victim. They always want to see themselves as suffering a little bit because everything is so unfair. And I want to teach tweens and kids about how the outcome of each day is totally dependent on how we decide to look Mm. at it. Have you got anything for us, Simon? So ultimately what we are looking to do here, and and I'm 
I'll start macro and go a bit micro. Okay. So the macro level, whether you are a teenager, an adult, going for a particular point in your journey, what we're ultimately looking to do here is to understand that we live in the feeling of our thinking moment to moment to moment. So what you bring into your thinking, you bring into your reality. Now, what we forget is we have a superpower and that superpower is choosing one thought over another at any given moment. So when you go through an experience or an event, what you come to realize with deeper self-awareness is there is really no such thing as happy or sad, good or bad. An event just is an event. But for the human mind to understand and connect with it, we have to give it a meaning. We get to choose what that meaning is. So we get to choose whether this event is the beginning of something beautiful, or we get to choose that event to mean the end of our potential. We get to choose that meaning. But when you are trying to educate other people, so it could be a parent trying to educate a teenager, uh, it could be a leader trying to educate the workforce, it is difficult to tell somebody what to do because we have a default of not listening unless we have an emotional buy-in to who that person is. It's why some teenagers will listen more to the celebrity they follow than to their own parents, even though they say the same thing. And it's simply because there's a greater and deeper emotional buy-in to the celebrity because they're seen as cool versus often the parents are not seen to be cool because teenagers may say, you don't get me or you don't understand. Now, to bypass that, what we have to do is empower them in the same way leaders can empower their employees. So instead of telling someone what to do, which we know they might not have a great response to that, what we want to do is empower them through the questions that we ask. So I'll give a couple of practical ideas here. So if you know that somebody is going through a bit of a negative patch, the last thing you want to ask them is something very generic. So if you were to say to them, how was your day? Now, if they're going through a bit of a negative patch or they're filled with negativity at the moment, they might say, oh, it was all right. This didn't happen. This person didn't like me. So their brain is focused on the negative. Indeed. But we can change their focus at a subconscious level by changing our question. You may have heard the cliche saying, want better answers, ask better questions. And so instead of saying, how was your day? We can change that question to say, hey, what went well today for you? So at a subconscious level, we're redirecting their brain to focus on the things that went well. To go out and seek out something that was positive in your day rather than... Indeed. And, and if a teenager or child wants to share a challenge or a difficulty, first, it's for us to accept that yes, it might be difficult. I mean, often as parents, we can quickly retort and say, no, nah, that's not difficult because we're operating from our reality. Now, of course, it isn't for us because we've got a hell of a lot more years experience versus them. And so what we don't want to do is impose our reality and experience on them because their reality and experience will be very different. So the first thing is to accept, yes, I can see why it is difficult and why it might be challenging. So they feel reassured, they feel understood. And then the second part is to ask something that can slowly help shift the way they're thinking. Something as simple as, what else could that mean? And so you're helping to encourage them to think through different lenses. That there's not just one way to see what happened, but it could be other ways. So I think this sort of soft empowerment and understanding with empathy can be powerful. And giving them a new lens to look at the situations with, mm. yeah, of course, the whole idea of perspective and switching it on its head, possibly. It's important, isn't it? 
Thank you for that. I think it's important to remember that idea around questioning because we all often can slip into a rut of Mm. daily routine and daily questions and and we forget the way we word something can completely alter the way we think about things. And I think you say it in your book, the more control you have over your mind and awareness, how it affects your reality, the happier you'll be. That's one of my favorite quotes. And then you go on to say the small steps you make today to reframe how you perceive yourself and the world around you can be the catalyst for the most wonderful of transformations. Definitely. And I think when we look at children and and of course, this is an area that I'm more interested in now, given given I'm a, I'm a father, is that what we notice with children is they are born with the entire spectrum of emotion. But what they lack is the years of experience that we have as parents on how to manage them. So what we can do in terms of the skill sets that we can pass on to our children is give them the tools and the resources to manage those emotions. They get given that, they have a powerful foundation to manage themselves as they grow up and into the world. I think there's a lot to be said about even naming those emotions and how we attach them to experiences can Mm. be really important too. It's like you say, one of the ones that brings me nicely onto my next question is that around failure, the big F word, which I like to put in quotes because I think many of us have a negative connotation with that word. And in your book, you also have a lovely, many lovely quotes. Mm-hmm. The one you mentioned around failure is the difference between a master and a beginner. And a beginner is that the master has failed more times than the beginner mm-hmm. has even tried. So I do a lot of work on resilience in one of the modules through the Elevate program. And I often have to spend a lot of time mm-hmm. in this module <laughs> with failure, particularly with adolescent and preteens, mm-hmm. because everything in terms of self-doubt and change and body and hormones are all creeping into mm-hmm. maybe affect the way they see themselves in the world. So I wanted to ask you, Simon, obviously you had quite pivotal moments in your mm-hmm. teen years as well, but is there something that you were ever afraid to try because of the fear of failure? And how did you overcome that fear? At the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey, there were many things that I was afraid to try. And I think it's because it was all new to me. I had no background in running a business. None of my media family had run a business. And so doing it for the first time with no background and no one apart from coaches and mentors to lean on, there were lots of things that I was afraid to do. But now I love experimentation. I love failing. I love trying things. And if there's anything I've acquired through failing so much is that with failure, you gain experience. So the faster you fail, the more experience you get, the more experience you get, the more knowledge you get. And as we know, knowledge is power. So if we see it in that way, failure gives you power. And so we need to reframe failure as rather something to be scared of, something to celebrate. Celebrate your failures because you gain experience from them. And you actually move forward a lot quicker than many people who would still be thinking about whether they want to take action or not. In fact, I think that imperfect action taken consistently is much better than perfect action never taken because your progress will be profound. I don't know what you did in your day job, but I know in the Mm. book, you definitely spoke about a, well, I'll I'll put a failed keynote speech because you forgot your notes in in one of the first talks that (laughs) That you were That was a crazy first experience. I mean, it was my, it was my first paid keynote. So you're not used and to public speaking, I'm guessing. So at that point, I wasn't because yeah. I, I, I mean, I did some talks before, but there was no pressure in the sense that they were free. There were people that I knew in the audience. I knew the organizer, but this was my first paid keynote. And so there was an expectation of the quality of the 
delivery I was going to I was going to do. And so I, I think the combination of it being new and the pressure probably got to me. And that's what triggered the nosebleed. I mean, I'm very susceptible in, in hot weather to nosebleeds. But what was chaotic at the time, I mean, just speaking about it now, I, I'm having a vision in my head of of what happened. And yeah, I'm I'm just lucky there wasn't there wasn't photographs <laughs> taken at the time because it was such a surreal experience of having all of that happen. And then realizing that I had to kind of make up a lot of it on the spot in, in the time I had up on stage. But again, was that if you look back on it and think, gosh, really everything I ever needed was within me. I know yeah. it's so empowering. It's so uplifting. But I know at the time these things are not we don't really have the ability at that point. So I'm going to be thankful for this later on. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we don't at the time. Totally. I, I mean, we don't at the time, but I'm certainly thankful for it because the experience and having failed and seen what can happen when you forget your notes, you, you kind of forget what's going to happen or things can go wrong. It made it possible for me to deliver talks of up to two hours without any technology, any slides, any props. It made it possible because it taught me that I have to be able to have a plan B. If everything went wrong, can I stand up in front of an audience for up to two hours just engaging and interacting and giving them value. And so I made sure that was a minimum in every talk that I gave from that point onwards. And for me, it was a great learning curve. Amazing teaching tool, isn't it? These real yeah. life experiences. Yeah. I do think I, I often tell my students just say yes. Just say yes to everything. Mm. Just try it. You never mm. know. You just never know what it might unleash in you. But unless you try, you don't really know. <laughs> Having said that, I know we can change these energy levels that we exist in with habits and people around you. You talked about your movement habit yeah. or the environments that we find ourselves in. I think as adults, we probably have more control over those mm. things. So like mm. you did, you had a job that you weren't totally convinced by so you went and found another way of experimenting with what mm. you might be passionate about when you're a child and you find yourself in a class with a teacher you don't like or you're surrounded mm. by peers that don't get you or you have a neurodiversity of some sort you know you have a difference of a kind yeah. and you can't maybe as easily just change the environment that you're in mm. what can we do for kids at this point other than giving them a talk or reminding them about the right question to ask, how do we help them find environments that can energize them? Sure. So one of the things I often tell people is that the fastest way to make progress in any area of your life, your career, or your business is to design an environment around you that makes it impossible not to succeed. Now, when I talk about environment, there are two environments. The first environment is the one you can control. So it could be who I spend time with on weekends and evenings, what I watch on television, what podcasts I listen to, what I watch on social media. These are the things you can control. On the other side, there are elements of your environment that you cannot control. So who your teacher is, who your colleagues are, who your student friends are. There are things that you can't control. Even your family, you can't control the people in your family. So if we are talking about that part of your environment that you cannot control, the way to manage that is to dilute the impact with the things you do in the time you can control. So when you go to school, when you come back from school, how you spend your evenings, how you spend your weekends, you could use that time to read books that will empower you, be part of communities or groups that will help nurture the interests you have that might not be catered for at your school. So you can use that time more wisely in order to dilute the impact that the other things in your environment cannot be controlled. 
the other word that I wanted to touch on based on some of the things that we can mm. help our children with <laughs> is uh, is the C word, mm. curiosity, and the energy behind lifelong learning, which I think is absolutely beautiful. I'm aligned with you on this, definitely. Mm. But I didn't actually realize until I read your book that there is such a thing as a curiosity quotient, a CQ, and as an, you, yeah. yeah, like a real metric. So mm. you've got IQ, we've got EQ. I do a lot of work on that too. But yeah. this idea around high CQ, which again, I think you sort of mentioned when you say when you come home, mm. find books that empower you, listen to follow influencers on social media that will uplift you. Mm. That begins with having a bit of curiosity to go and investigate, right? Yeah. And I think the definition that I looked up then for CQ is being invested in continual knowledge acquisition, giving mm. yourself a rich toolkit to reach for when crafting simple solutions to complex problems. Mm. So some children, like everything else, might be born with a high cue, I'm guessing. They might have a great imagination. They might ask lots of questions. But do you think this is something that we can teach too to our tweens, particularly who are in that pre-adolescent mm. stage and they're just redefining who they are? Or do you think it needs it to be something that you have to start much, much younger? I know Montessori schools, Maria Montessori yeah. famously started the whole Montessori <laughs> program based on curiosity. And does curiosity begin to fade as we grow? You're right. I think we are all born curious humans. Just look at young children and the amount of times they ask why, why? questions <laughs> from the age of around two and a half to three years old. Sure. Every question is, why is this blue? Why is this orange? Why does this have to happen? Why can't I get that? So we are all naturally curious people. But what happens is as we get older, our curiosity quotient suffers. And the reason it suffers is because we don't have a nurturing environment to allow that curiosity to thrive. So if a child or a teenager was to go to school or come home and say, oh, I've got this brilliant idea, or hey, I read about this, what do you think about that? Often because of the age and lack of experience, they're very quickly shut down. In the same way that if you look at organizations, if an employee who is of a very low rank compared to a leader puts an idea forward, they're often dismissed because they are not deemed to have sufficient experience or to be senior enough to contribute to a discussion. So when you go through enough of that, you just give up following your curiosity or you give up wanting to explore something new because who's going to hear you? You've been who's shut down too many times. You've been shut down too many times. So most of us have that creative spirit inside of us to follow our curiosity. But as we get older, that gets suppressed and we end up conforming to the majority. Now, as a way to encourage it, and this is a habit that I learned from Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is to encourage it, whether you have a young child or, or a teenager, is you want to involve them in family decisions. And this is coming from a home perspective. You want to involve them in family decisions as if they're an adult. Because what's happening is, firstly, you're empowering them. You're saying you have a say in how we run the household. But also, you're saying your ideas are just as valuable as ours. <laughs> so it's not just this weekend, we're going to do what mom and dad wants to do. We can say, hey, what are your ideas on what we can do this weekend or this half term or this summer holiday? It allows them to express the curiosity. They might say, I've been hearing from some friends that it's really cool to check this place out. They really enjoyed it when they went there last year. Great. Would you help us by looking more into it? Maybe see how we can do that, what the cost is going to be, and maybe we can work out how we're going to get there. So when they feel part of the decision-making process, it's a great way to include them, but also it gives them permission to follow their curiosity. 
And it's the same in schools. You know, when you have children that come in and they they want to share what they're learning with people, give them that opportunity. I've often said to entrepreneurial groups and even entrepreneur talent in the next generation that one of the best skills that we can teach our children is how to communicate. So if they're curious about something, why not encourage them to share by giving the students a platform to share their curiosities, to share their learnings, even if it has nothing to do with the curriculum. That's a tool that I've seen a lot of companies use and and it's worked a brilliant effect. They've often said to their employees, we want you to think different. Now, the only way to think different is to allow you to follow your curiosities. So Mm -hmm. we want you to go to conferences and seminars and read books about topics unrelated to what we do, but that are your curiosities. In return, once a week, we're going to get one of you from the team to share what you've learned to see if there's anything we can take from that to apply in our day-to-day work. Because that's how we're going to think different. That's how we're going to give oxygen to creativity is not by reading and attending the same events and reading the same books, but by harnessing the curiosities that each and every one of you possess. And so I think there's a lot of work that we can do as parents, as teachers, as leaders to create space for that curiosity to thrive. Amen to that. Yeah, I love that (laughs) idea. I hope many teachers listening to this will follow suit. Mm. Now, as a father, Simon, of a young girl yourself, What is your biggest hope for her and what is your biggest worry as she's growing up? My biggest hope is very simple. She finds work that brings meaning to her life and she has a community and circle of friends around her that want her to succeed and that will not only encourage her, but challenge her to be better than who she was yesterday. That's my my hope. My worry, as I'm sure many parents' worries are very similar to this, is the impact of social media and society, I guess, on how she views herself. I think from zero to 10, she'll be fine because from zero to 10, most children have a closer bond and relationship with their parents. For me, as as she enters- Three teens. (laughs) Indeed, as she enters uh, the world of being a teenager and, and being a young adult, because I think once she enters that period, it's less about spending time with the parents, but more about looking cool amongst your friends. And the impact of social media can be very toxic on on that. And it can shift where you spend your money and your attention, especially young girls. And so that's my major worry is when she enters her teenage years, what impact will social media and the pressures of society have on her and what she deems as important. And so that's my worry. All I can do as a parent is focus on giving her the skill set to deal with what she is going to encounter and and hope that she can use that to good effect. But at the end of the day, I'm also respectful that everyone is their own person. Of course, going right full circle back to where we started, that most teenagers maybe don't think, no matter how cool you think we are, yeah. I think you are, Simon, your daughter <laughs> may not think you're cool. And 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 yes, the voice of the parent becomes less. I mean, we're there in the background and yeah. we can offer our guidance, but just reminding them that they're, you're, you've got a safety net to fall back on mm. when you are out yeah. there experimenting, but fulfilling your dreams and being energized with the right <laughs> people is, is what I, I hope to take from your book and apply to my work as an educator for young people. So mm. I I appreciate what you've said and I hear it a lot. So it's definitely a common concern. If you could go back to your teen self today and whisper something, knowing what mm. you know, what would you say? It's a good one because it's something I also share in my book when I did a very similar exercise. And so the one thing I would say to my teenage self would be 
listen more to your heart than the opinions of others who may not really care about you. Uh, listen more to the words that come from your heart than seeking validation from others. I know you're here to that. It's such a hard lesson, isn't it? It's mm. so important with hindsight, it's easier to see, but I wish I had that as a teenager as well. I really do. I get yeah. it. Simon, I just love to end with a quick rapid fire of questions. If you don't Go mind. For it. Okay. I, I love these sort of questions. So let's, uh, let's shoot. <laughs> All right. Excellent. A song that instantly lifts you, energizes you, puts your spring in your step. Run boy run. Oh, if you, if you Google run boy run, that was the first song that I used on my speaker showreel. It's oh. a song that I listen just to get me in the mood if I need a bit of a boost. Love it. You're stuck on a deserted island and you're only allowed one cuisine. What would you eat? And side note, what have you got against prawns? <laughs> <laughs> so if I could only have one meal there, it would be, there's a Malaysian dish called char kway tiao, which in English is basically flat rice noodles with fish balls, seafood and meat. Uh, and that would be the one dish, not just because it's tasty and delicious, but because it reminds me of my upbringing and, and my background and my culture. So I think there's a lot of stories that come with that plate of food. What have I got against prawns? You know, it's the only thing I don't eat. I eat everything else but prawns. And I think it was just as a result of growing up, I, I would have the physical prawn and I would vomit after eating it. And that just kind of put me off eating it. But the weird thing is I can have dried shrimp. I can mm. have prawn crackers. I can eat prawn paste. Uh, I can eat sesame toast with dried prawns inside. But just okay. the physical prawn triggers something. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Okay, I can understand that aversion now. Um, <laughs> I, I I lived in Singapore up until last year, and so I did make a couple of trips to Malaysia as oh, well. And I, I, I love Singapore. I'm, I'm looking forward yeah. to uh, visiting there again next year. Are you? Oh, well, maybe we can time it. I'd love to be there too again <laughs> next year. <laughs> it's such a great place. I love it. Celebrity that you would most like to have dinner with? Ooh, celebrity I would love to most have dinner with. I would say it would probably be Barack Obama. Because I'm always looking to be a better speaker, and I think he's up there as one of the best orators of, of our time. And just to learn from him would be immense. I'm with you on that. I think I would have chosen Michelle and him. But yeah, I get it. If you had to pick one. <laughs> a movie or a show, a series, something that leaves you feeling energized, something that you've seen and love going back to. I'm going to cheat, if I may, and say two. Because one would be more recent, one would be just looking back in my whole life today. So I would say one more recent is the Netflix series Live to 100, which is presented by Dan Butner, who wrote the book The Blue Zones. And the reason that energizes me is because it shows how we can make some simple adjustments in our lifestyle to increase the probability that we live longer. And I think the series is beautifully shot. You learn so much through the stories. And I'm inspired when you see, I mean, there was one scene showing a 97-year-old weightlifting. I'm like, wow. You know, most, most people at 90 years old, when we think about them, you would imagine being in a care home, being in a wheelchair, you know, very fragile, very uh, slow. But this 97-year-old was lifting weights mm. and doing chin-ups in, in an outdoor gym. And so that TV series has really energized and inspired me to make more shifts in my lifestyle to increase the chance I get to live to 100. Mm -hmm. So that's the one recent one. If I go back further, I would say the film that has had an impact that just energized my thinking is a film called Limitless. It stars Bradley Cooper. It just shows you what is possible with the right focus. I mean, of course, the film is fictional, but 
the message I, I thought was very powerful. It's a film I've watched again and again. What's the best advice you've ever received? I think the best advice I've ever received was from one of my early mentors, a guy called Bob Berg, mm -hmm. who co-wrote a book, a best-selling book called The Go-Giver. And the best advice he gave to me was the secret to success is giving. Now, what I took away from that, which is something I've expanded on in my book and in, in other posts and articles I've written about, is our value as humans is determined by how much more we have given to the world than we have taken from it. That journey is really one from focusing on career virtues to legacy virtues, because career virtues are things people easily forget. But legacy virtues live on uh, beyond your time on this planet. So yeah, the secret to success is giving was probably one of the best bits of advice I was given and something I've looked to integrate and implement in how I do and how I do my business. Completely get that. And working like maybe backwards. So imagining yourself on the last day of your life on yeah. earth and thinking about what you'd like to be remembered for is mm. such a powerful mm. way to remind yourself about what you're giving and leaving behind. Right. That might be the final question then. What gives you hope? Because I think that might be linked. <laughs> <laughs> what gives me hope? I think the fact that a lot of the work I do, so when I say a lot of work I do, I'm referring to personal development in general, healthy living, is becoming more mainstream. The fact that there's a lot more programs on streaming platforms, there's films out there. Uh, the Mark Manson book was turned into a film. There are a lot more communities and conferences talking about these topics. That gives me hope. Because I think the more that these teachings can be out in the mainstream, adopted by companies, schools, and communities, the greater the impact we're going to have on future generations. The change is coming and progress mm, is being made. Mm. That's fantastic. <laughs> A perfect note to end the interview on, Simon. Thank you so much. If anyone who's listening to this would love to get a copy of your book, which I highly recommend, I'm linking it in the show notes. Get yourself a copy. I cannot recommend it enough. Mm. And if they wanted to find out more about your work, Simon, or follow more of your talks, where would you direct them? Sure. My website is simonalexanderong.com. I am also on all the major social media platforms, but the two I use the most are LinkedIn. You can search Simon Alexander Ong on LinkedIn and you will, you will find me there. And Instagram. Uh, Instagram, <laughs> my handle is at Simon Alexander O. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for everything. It's been absolutely wonderful to spend this time in your company. I certainly feel more energized after being <laughs> <laughs> with you. And it's been wonderful to get to know you and learn from you. Thank you for everything you're doing and good luck with all the rest. That's thank coming. you so much. <laughs> and that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.